Hi there, I'm Emma Keesley. And I'm Sydney Allen. And this is Uncovering Publishing, the UCL Publishing Podcast. Uh, today we had on Dan Kieran. Dan Kieran is the co-founder and CEO of the crowdfunded publisher Unbound. He's the author of 12 books, including The Idle Traveler. He is also a travel writer for numerous publications, including The Guardian and The Observer. He's also a lecturer at UCL for business management and publishing. His latest book is The Surfboard, and his new book with the Do Lecture series will be out April 6th. This episode was focused on the startup sector of the publishing industry and what it takes to go from being a writer to a managing editor to an entrepreneur. For those looking for a job in publishing, stay tuned for conversations about authenticity, failure, getting out of your comfort zone, and being a disruptor in an industry that's famously resistant to disruption. My biggest takeaway was how Dan is an excellent storyteller and uses that talent not only in his role as an author, but in his work as an entrepreneur. Uh, we had a nice long conversation with Dan, but in the interest of time, we cut the icebreakers in favor of a very fun game at the end of the pod. So stay tuned for that. And without further ado, our conversation with Dan Kieran. What got you into the publishing field? Was there something in particular that drew you in interest-wise or just a natural progression of your career? Um, I always knew that I was that I was a writer. I always okay. knew that, even when I was getting terrible marks at school in English, which I did. Anyway, so I always knew I was interested in books and writing. Um, and I was particularly obsessed with a magazine called The Ivor, which was quite new. It had just come out... Um, the third time Tom Hodgkinson and Becky Pressfield Keane uh, brought it out in the kind of mid 90s um, and I read it a lot as a kid and then I basically had a sort of I had really bad mental health stuff when I was a kid I had really bad anxiety in my late teens and early 20s had really bad panic attacks and again no one talked about that then you just couldn't talk about it and by talking about it you sort of made it real so I had a it's, a, it's an extraordinary story, but and it's a long story, which I'll keep short. But I ended up living in Camden, having a bit of a breakdown. Um, I, was, I was at university, but I couldn't go because I was too scared to get a bus to Holloway, which is where I went. Um, and I was getting panic attacks the whole time, and I ended up becoming quite acrophobic, so I sort of didn't leave my flat for a very long time. I mean, I, I sort of would leave to go shopping and have panic attacks mm -hmm. and then run back. So it was a, I was in a real, really difficult space. Anyway, I was walking back one day. I used to try and walk further each day before the panic attack came and I had to run home. And one day I did that, and uh, there was a bookshop called the Williams Park Bookshop, just a couple of doors up from where um, where I lived. And the co there was an idler in the window, and it had Kramer from Seinfeld on the front cover. It's a white orange issue. And I hadn't seen it for a few years. And I bought it and I went home and I got very depressed that I was having this kind of mental health crisis and I thought what I really should be doing is working for the Ivor magazine. Like if my life had gone well, that's where I would be working. So I thought, well, I'll ring them and try and get work experience. I was sort of, must have been 21, 22, uh, which was a ludicrous notion because I couldn't leave my house. <laughs> um, and I went to look at the phone number and I looked at the address and the office of the Ivor was next door to my flat. Wow. That's a sign. I didn't know that detail. <laughs> that is so yeah. cool. So I sort of rang them and they put me through to Tom, the editor. Talk and I was about like, luck. I'm supposed to come work for you. I obviously didn't tell them I was in this kind of terrible place mentally, but it meant it was kind of like the only place I could work. Right. Because it was, I could see my house. And when you're acrophobic, you just want to run home all the time. If you go anywhere, you, all you think about for the minute you leave the house, how am I going to get back? When am I going to get back? Mm. Um, 
anyway, I persuaded them to let me do work experience one day a week. And then I sort of gradually became, yes, I just became more confident. I had friends. I just managed to pull myself out of the situation I was in mentally, not completely, but enough to kind of function. And well, enough to become managing editor eventually. Yeah. So. Well, that was the weird thing. Once I got in and made myself useful, um, you, mean, you know, when you get an opportunity, right? right? You know, and you are like, I am all in now. And yeah. that, that is something in my nature. If I commit to something, then I will not let anything get in my way. Like, I will make it happen. And it, yeah, I, I built that website, and then that turned into a big success with a book. I did my first book, which was how I kind of became a writer. Um, there's a book called Crap Towns, which was a big hit. And as you guys know, if, if in publishing, if you have a hit, publishers are like falling over themselves to ask you to write another book because there's a chance you might do it again. So you originally got your job at the Idler by offering to work that one day a week and making yourself indispensable when ironically, the Idler is a book about, or a magazine about laziness. <laughs> so <laughs> kind of funny. And you always say, you know, well, find what you love and do it. Yeah. And you loved as you talk about in class, being lazy. I love being lazy. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, laziness is like, um, it's just as a concept, it's been really, it's got a really bad press. I think it's, I think the sort of, the sort of slander of laziness has been used to control people. And the seven sins. So like, you know, um, there are loads of interesting historical examples, like um, the original seven deadly sin for sloth wasn't sloth. It was sadness to knowingly live in sadness. And it became sloth as a way of punishing people who were terrified of eternal damnation uh, into working in you know, the new industrial mills of, of northern England. So there's a, and at, at the Idler, you learn through magazines and reading, and Tom is this amazing authority on it. And he has fantastic historian contributors like Ronald Hutton, people who really know about the past and spent years researching it. And it's a very common theme. Powerful people use the threat and use the slander of laziness and they use the threat of going to hell to force people to do things they don't want to do in shit jobs for terrible wages and, and in the process lose control of their lives. Um, so the IDA is a magazine about laziness, but it's actually, it's like a kind of revolutionary idea. It's quite radical. Yeah, it's yeah. very radical that we are being controlled. And what's interesting about it is when you look back historically, certainly in the English nation. Uh, we just had this amazing contributor called John Nicholson who died last year really sadly. And he wrote this thing called The Primer of English Violence. And it was basically proof that we weren't, the English people are not stiff upper lip, people who don't complain. It was basically like every year for the last 300 years practically, there's been some massive civil riot or disturbance of some kind when the people try and get rid of the authority, the figures of authority in the country. So we have this, like tangible past that celebrates get, fighting against the people that want to control you and being like being lazy for me is a sort of that it's about asserting your own control over your own life because mm. idlers are very they do a lot <laughs> like you can't be an idler and run a magazine well right. and you can't really be hard work. you can't be an idler and be a ceo exactly so we were going to ask that time at the idler and those concepts that you learned how did that mesh in with your entrepreneurial ventures and unbound well it was it was really really hard it's <laughs> <laughs> um, a hilarious conversation with Tom about you know we've been right we've worked in this magazine extolling you know i, I mean i remember at the idler coming up with the idea that we should hire a doctor to write for the idler and give us really good 
um, illnesses that people could claim to have to pull sickies. You know, oh my like, gosh. Yeah, we were like, let's take this to the next level. And then you're kind of employing people uh, and you're suddenly seeing it from the other side. So it was, um, it was really interesting, but I was determined to stay true to my, you know, idler ideals. Hmm. So I tried to embrace them as a boss um, by giving people the things that make people succeed and excel at work, which is, you know, give them an environment of respect, give them a chance to um, become masters, to grow, um, support people, create an environment where there's no fear. Um, I mean, I'm not saying I achieved that, but those were the things that I was really determined to value. Um, actually, when I left Unbound, one of the one of the biggest, one of the best things about leaving was emails from team members to the staff saying, "Oh, I had a few young mums saying you just made me feel so good about being a mother and make sure we're really supportive." That's stuff awesome. like that. Yeah. It's so funny because, I th- and it's amazing what you did, but it feels like it should be so easy. To offer that, and yet it's so hard to find a company that really will kind of put in that time, and it is a disruption yeah. to also the industry. It feels like it. there's such a disconnect between the the radicalism of the philosophy of being idle and slowing down and doing less as like the core ideas, and then the the basic things that people are asking for, like I just had a baby, can I have a few months <laughs> right. to take care of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. or like you know what I mean, like can I have a few days of vacation every year at least in the u.s it's it's pretty yes. grim it was <laughs> um, America. Well, it's, well, it's just such a big gulf between those two well, so it's actually all connected so the, the biggest problem in the western world is is people confuse suffering with virtue and oh is, totally yeah. there's a guy on a cross in all of our imaginations yeah. where that comes from and that's where presenteeism comes from that's where that's why bosses treat people badly because they feel like to get the best out of people have to be tough um, and one of the things I learned through, I mean, doing Unbound, I've got a book out next year all about this, is that you go on two entrepreneurial journeys. One is the business journey, how to run a business. The second is how you evolve as a human to stay sane in the process of running a business. Um, and that's something that I really care about because when you when you go on the, your own journey of development, I mean, the conclusion I came to, which is not that revelatory, but it was new to me, was that if you act from love, not fear, things work. And business, the business environment is one where everyone's motivated by fear. I mean, and I had that mindset, it came to me in difficult moments, and I, I came up with a name for it, which was my inner 18th century mill owner. <laughs> and it was my inner 18th century mill owner that wanted me to be tough and hard, even though that form of leadership would not achieve the goal I, I needed to achieve to continue in business. So it's really counterintuitive. You have to behave in a way that you're told is weak, okay. but actually work. It's, it makes no know. sense when you look at it in an even cursory way. But that's why another of my obsessions is to get more people to be entrepreneurs. Yeah. Because in my view, you change. It's much easier. So before I did Un- Unbound years ago, I did a book called I Fought the Law, which is essentially about how the new Labour government has criminalised protest. Um, so what are the links between, you know, storytelling as an author and storytelling as an entrepreneur? So that's really interesting. That's really interesting. So quite often, it's actually slightly different with the books because for most of my books, I've effectively, not entirely, but effectively got drunk in a pub, <laughs> come up with an idea. I feel like so with... many of your stories start. I know. Like, <laughs> it's I was... always in the pub. <laughs> One dark and stormy night, I was in a pub. No, what happened this time? That's where you go <laughs> to kind of get your ideas happening. 
I think we left one of your one of your classes one time, and I was like, "It sounds like we should just go to pubs." <laughs> this is my conclusion. <laughs> nice Start places. drinking more, right, especially in midwinter in London. Yeah, yeah. it's a great place to be. But but no, one of my insights of writing actually was that I was having these ideas, and I would do a proposal, sell it to a publisher, and then live it. And then I did the Idle Traveller, which I did in the opposite way. I had lived a slow travel life for 20 years and someone said to me, why don't you write a book about what the life you lived? And it was by far, it was a better book. Like, I, th I mean, I don't think I've written a completely great book and The Idle Traveler is my closest. I feel like it's an 80% good book. Um, and I just had a real insight as someone that wants to, that self-identifies as a writer and that's how I think and where in my life through that lens. It just felt more authentic to write about a life I'd lived it's like a kind of extreme form of gonzo journalism. So for me, I mean, when I left Unbound, part of me felt like, God, I now feel like I only did it to write about, right? It's not yeah. entirely true, because I did it for all kinds of different reasons, but the book I've just written, again, it's like 10 years into 25,000 words, and I think it's great, because I, I know it's authentic. Um, I'm writing about the life that I lived. So I think if there's a connection, it's that authenticity. So, I mean, I did care about the milk float thing, and I did care about I bought the law, but they were just like, I've got to pay the rent, I've got kids, I need to get money, I, I do it by writing, this is commercial, this will sell, I'll do this book, and it'll make me this much money for 12 months. And you know, I mean, that was, it was very much, that's how I lived. I would sign a book deal, you get paid in thirds when you sign the contract, when you hand it in, when it comes out. So I was basically doing a book a year and living on that as an annual salary. But when I started to do Unbound, I wasn't obviously doing that anymore. And it gave me the opportunity to write about. And it's just anyway. So that that's that's how I've sort of switched um, in my head. And it feels I feel like the book's better because I've truly lived the experience. And I think that comes across. It makes you a better writer if you lived it. Well, and I think authenticity has been the name of the game in a lot of different things we've been talking about. A lot of you know, like TikTok and selling books, a lot of social media is about authenticity. But if you also look at Unbound, what are the books that are going to be successful and raise the most money? It's going to be the ones that speak to that part of people. The Lego enthusiasts. Yeah. Yeah, I, just, yeah. I mean, that's, that is passion. Yep. Well, that's, I mean, actually, that's the great strength of that model, which is that when you're relying on effectively fan funding, mm -hmm. they can just smell a rat. So you can't be fake. They're the Not smartest. Not that we've ever tried, but if you do, it doesn't work. Yeah. People are too smart. So it, it enforces on you a kind of um, integrity, I think, in terms of the idea. But what's also, what I loved about the, love about the model, I love, what I still love about it, is that people, for campaigning books, for books where books don't exist, and they're, what we, dream, what we dreamt of was let's create a platform where people can prove there's demand. They have to wait for some old guy in a publisher who's using historic sales data. Who's, who is, if you're only using historic sales data, how are you going to predict a book that's entirely new and groundbreaking? Um, which everyone in publishing is looking for, but that kind of data set they use for acquisition just makes, it makes them blind to the new, the new thing. Obviously they're not, they work, those are great people working really hard to get around that system, but fundamentally a bestseller, if there's a bestseller, there's an immediate meeting in a publisher the next day saying, well, how can we do that in a well, slightly different way? We're finding this with a lot of our dissertations. We have to use that same Nielsen book data, yeah. but it's all historical. Yeah. What has been published historically yeah. is not reflective of what the demand exactly. 
necessarily and if, is. And if you're saying this proves there's a market for this book and using historic sales data, as far as I can say, you're just not in the game. Yeah. And so what crowdfunding does is it say, someone can say, there's a market for this book and you can go, we'll prove it. And they go, here you go. And they have proven it and then they become big and successful. And that changes sale, historic sales data. All right. So related to, we're now into talking about Unbound yeah. and mm -hmm. the things that it does differently. You talk a lot about disruption and being a disruptor and how important that is. Um, where does that sort of drive and focus on disruption come from. We've got a quote from Miranda, uh, Miranda West of the <laughs> Duba company. She goes, they were the plucky disruptors in an established industry who gradually won over authors and agents and built a highly engaged community about Unbound. But I'm I'm interested in, in, the, in the focus on disruption. We're doing a business management module yeah. and the main brief was what parts of the industry need to be disrupted. So where did that sort of focus on disruption come from for you? Because I don't feel like everyone necessarily has it. Mm. Where did that come from? Um, well, it, it, I suppose it came from, it came from my own personal failure in that after the crash of 2008, my, you know, my books I'd had this bestseller, none of my other books had sold quite as well. I came up with a new idea. Publishers were like, we really like the idea, but every slight batten down hatches and effectively I couldn't get a book deal. Mm -hmm. um, so part of it came from me being grumpy about that. Just frustration. Yeah, like anger. Because yeah. I felt like this was the greatest book idea I'd ever had. And I had people telling me people didn't want to read it. And I was like, well, how do you know? Um, and Anger can be a very powerful agent for change. It's not... <laughs> yeah. And it's nothing I, to well, be sneezed at. Very often that's where the... You have to you have to feel like you're deeply in the shit sometimes to yeah. find out what you're prepared to do, and you know that's very. I mean, I was I was angry. I think I think in my personality, like I'm a middle class white man, so I can hardly claim to be an outsider. But in as much as it's possible for a middle class white man to be an outsider, I am one. In that I look like the establishment, but I don't have a degree. I didn't do very well at school. I had a kind of mental health struggle, which meant that I'm always um, and because of my age, you know, I talk about it a lot now, but for a long time that redefined who I was. So I felt like I was cast adrift. Um, my parents were when I was 15 and I, I sort of felt like I was a helium filled balloon that no one was holding on to. So I had, I sort of, in my personality as a result of those experiences, I've always felt like I was outside the mainstream. Um, and then I started to realize that this business model, I spoke to John and Justin about it. John talked about Kickstarter, which was only six months old at the time. And I explained that I was going to do my next book on my own. I was going to make a video and I was going to use a PayPal account to get people to pay for it. And if I had enough people doing it, then I would write the book. And John and Justin were like, well, everyone needs that. Like there's this new thing called Kickstarter. Social media is happening. Twitter was three or four years old. Steve, earlier the year before Stephen Fry had tweeted, I'm, I got stu I'm stuck in a lift, which was like the moment that Twitter exploded in the UK. So technology was moving, publishers were, I mean, the word disruption, that came from fundraising. Like if you are, if you want to start a publisher and you want to raise money for a publisher, talk, talked about this in class, you don't say you're a publisher. Uh, you have to say you're a tech business because mm. no one wants to invest in a publisher because the perception is that they're historically like a legacy industry that one day is going to get disrupted. 
Well, or that the industry is one specific size and it's never going to change from the $4 billion industry that it is, which is questionable in my opinion. That's a a very good point. Yeah, that's certainly the way it's perceived. Um, So I sort of come to it with this outsider mentality and then I start to look around me and every author I speak to says, um, oh, yeah, there are all these books I want to do, but the publishers won't let me do them. And John and I had loads of meetings with agents and one of them, not going to name that, out of respect to him, but one of them said, looked at me and said, do you really think all the great books aren't getting published? Like, do you wow. really think Ooh, that? That's crazy. Do you really think they're not getting through? Like, honestly, yeah, really. You don't think we can do our jobs? It was kind of, but what it was, was for, for his, from where he was sitting, the way publishing behaved as an industry that worked for him, that fulfilled his perception of what publishing was, he was right. But he was had a very specific viewpoint. Yeah. And I was quite like him, like in terms of socioeconomically mm-hmm. and, you know, a background. But I could see that he was wrong. And then I look around me and there are all the women in the room. There's people of colour in the room. Yeah. Like, Holy shit. <laughs> and, and one of the things I'm really interested in is untapped resources, especially when it comes to ideas. So I started to realize over time, oh my God, there are so many people who can't get into publishing, who have amazing ideas, amazing books. Um, and we've published loads of, loads of great books. One of the books that we published is a book called Girl with a Gun. And it's, I grew up reading Andy McNabb and all these SAS books and Flashman, the Flashman mm. papers. And I read this extraordinary memoir um, by this incredible woman who was a kind of soldier uh, in Iran, and you just, and I'm like, holy shit, I've never, I'm not saying that perspective wasn't being published, or, but I was like, that those were the books for me, the emblematic books for us, where like, if I'm hearing someone's story, or hearing a take on things which I haven't heard before, um, then that's what I'm bound for, and once you start to, once you start to realise that's your superpower, everyone who comes to work for you, comes to work for you because that's what you're doing. Um, and so your integrity in terms of the purpose and the vision of your business starts to get baked in because it's not in me, it's not the fact that I think it, it's the fact that mm-hmm. everyone turns up every day and thinks about it. But the thing that I found frustrating was people were, were like, oh, you're, you're doing really well, you're doing a really good thing. And I was like, no, we're making money. Yeah. Like, this isn't, a, we're not the Arts Council. Exactly. There's a massive financial opportunity here that you're not engaging with. Yeah, there was a gap. We filled the market. And we're beginning to just, I mean, we're nowhere near filling it. (sighs) We're just beginning to show it's there. Because it's not only people who want to work in publishing, it's just the readers. Like, I think especially in the US, there are so many readers that just aren't marketed to and aren't told that there are books that they, that are for them, that they can read. There's so many. Yeah, and and for me, it's any interest. If you have an interest, like, we have video gamers who are like, like, my son is obsessed with video games, and he's like, they're the new theatre, they're cinema. Theater. They make they're so much, talk together. about big industries, oh my gosh. You have a kind of, I mean, I don't debate with him because I can tell he's right. Like <laughs> for him, they are movies, that they're, they're everything, they're books, they're all of that in one go. And yet there are no, they're just not given the credit for that. They're not seen in that way. And the book as an artifact is how you um, achieve kind of cultural value. You know, there were plenty of religions kicking around thousands of years ago. The one that remained are the ones where there was a book. Like there's something about something books. written down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what matters. So 
Yeah, so it's, so it's it's all kinds of anybody that feels they're not represented in the culture around them. Um, then if there's an audience for those books, then a publisher needs to be servicing that, needs to be open to that, needs to be working in that space. The biggest shock to me when I started this program was I never realized just how wide the gap was between the author and the reader yeah. uh, and the lack of thought that the publisher actually gives to the reader. Um, but Unbound really did take that into account. Uh, yeah, well, kind our, of letting the reader come back into power in a way. Yeah, I mean, our, I always saw, well, I didn't always see it, but over time I began to realize, when we started, when I used to pitch Unbound in the first couple of years, publishers were terrible. <laughs> like, I saw the fear in their faces because at the time, things were getting launched which were completely wiping out legacy like music business gone with spotify there was a huge amount of paranoia no oh more God, blockbuster yeah. <laughs> yeah and lots of people were dismissive of us but i i had the meetings and i saw the fear in their eyes um and it hasn't hasn't come to pass so i wanted just to change everything but what i've realized and come to terms with over time is that authors have used us are using us to change the industry so they are proving there's an audience for their work with Unbound and then they're going into other publishers. And I really hated that at the beginning. So I was like, guys, what are you doing? We're changing the world. Stay with us. It's a much slower <laughs> kind of influence. Right, but yeah. they're like, no, we're going to change it by getting in there. And, and, and as I say, it took me a long time to get to accept that. But they're right, and I was wrong. And that is the point. I now think that's the point, is that people use Unbound to prove there's an audience for their work. And our job is to always be finding the new thing. It's not to be doing another version of the one that was successful. As is, you know, that's what yeah. about should be doing. Should be finding mm -hmm. uh, So both in this interview and in your Medium article, you mentioned one of the top reasons for starting Unbound was being fed up with the traditional publishing industry's failure to embrace technology. Uh, what else do you find are the biggest shortfalls in the publishing industry right now? Ones that Unbound isn't solving. Yeah, excluding yeah. The, yes. the reader, you've, you've got that one You had to covered. go and start another company that fixed a shortfall in the industry, what would you be doing? Oh, that's a good question. What what grinds your gears? <laughs> what gets your goat? I don't know. <laughs> ah, God, there are so many things. <laughs> it's, and no one really talks about them. You do a quick fire. Well, we did, so Unbound did go direct, but we di went direct in a slightly different way. Like at some point, like a publisher, if a publisher wants to be a main player in the industry in the next 20 or 30 years, in my view, they have to go direct. Direct to consumer? They have to. Interesting. I just don't under, like I understand why they're not, because they're making so much money. But if you look at it from a kind of long-term perspective, giving Amazon ownership of all your customers, right. it just, like the data Amazon have, I mean, I've heard, you know, if you think about what Amazon could do, right? They're not doing this. I'm not saying that they're going to do this tomorrow but they know how much of books people read, right? It goes mm -hmm. back to publishers not understanding or embracing technology. Yeah. They don't understand the value don't of that data. Like, that data is so valuable. Like what, what if you go to Amazon and as well as the star rating, it tells you what percentage of people finish the book. Interestingly, I'll just plug a company right now, Glassbox. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar. They just came out with a technology similar that publishers can start using right. to track how far people are reading into their eBooks. Yeah they're finishing them, where they're stopping, so on and so forth, so. Yeah, I mean, it's... They have the information. They, they, I, I use Scribd, and they know exactly how far into a book yeah. I get or don't get. I mean, I think, I don't know what, like, the thought of them actually doing that is quite terrifying, because that might affect the <laughs> process in a, in a de detrimental way, but... <clears throat> 
someone's got to go direct in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. I just think that the, you know, your publishers are competing with Netflix and Disney Plus, and I just see authors, the keeping authors away from readers just limits what's available to the readers, and it limits the author's earning potential. Like, I'm mm -hmm. about to go to a thing at um, House of Commons about the, author, uh, the author's um, writing group, and it's going to talk about author's earnings, which are going to be terrible again because the average author's earnings are awful. Um, so publishers have to monetize authors in new ways, and mm -hmm. you can only do that if you go direct. Authors have so many great ideas. They could do so many great things if they had that mechanism. Um, and I don't suppose agents are going to do it because they don't want to get anywhere. Publishers, publishers, I don't know why they're not going there. I mean, I do know why they're not going there in the sense that they're making enough money. But I do think somebody's got to take that on and, and do it in a way that progresses uh, and makes the industry have you know be more responsive to what people really want, not what mm -hmm. they think they want based on what sell was a hit. Last I will year. say it does seem quite disruptive because you talk about agents. Agents are more involved in like finding the author right and advocating for the author mm -hmm. to the publishers. Yeah. But the the job at the other end of the spectrum, like communicating about books to consumers is left up to what, like, you know, bookshops? Yeah, and it's, uh, it's PR. Just so, it's just so PR. It's, it's very nebulous. It's yeah. hard to pin down what that is. And I think direct-to-consumer would make it much more straightforward. What is that job? What are you supposed to be doing? Yeah, and there, there are people doing interesting things in the space, but what you've got to think about is if a, pu if a really big publisher said, we're doing this, they could define it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have so much power. And most agents that I know, you know, are as frustrated as readers are at the fact that they can't do more with their readers. They're always trying to find new ways to help them earn more money. These are the people that create the ideas that define our times. Like, why are they being hidden in a box? Like, and literary festivals have so much energy and vibrancy, but again, as an author, you get paid in wine. I mean, what? It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I've done talks. No, not, I mean, we've, all authors have done talks. There's 200 people in the room who spend 10 quid. And the literary festivals barely breaking even and they would all spend so much more than 10 quid if they could <laughs> right, right. And, exactly. you know it's like you know uh, my daughter's on at me constantly to buy Taylor Swift tickets even though she hasn't even announced yeah. a tour in the UK yet and she's like well you get floor tickets you know there's like 10 oh. different price points I don't even know what they're going to be yet um, they're disgusting it's, in the United States but that's what I mean but it's the same thing like, <laughs> what other industry would you turn someone that's prepared to pay a thousand pounds into someone that can only spend seven ninety nine on Amazon? I mean, it's it's just so illogical, and that was one of the big frustrations I found that, you know, publishers could be earning authors more money. Authors always do seem to get the shit end of the stick when it comes to publishing. I don't know. I just yes. I always well, feel so bad. And if you for think them. about it, if authors could earn more money, then more people, more talented people, could be, be authors. authors. Yeah, they write more books. Exactly. Yeah. And at the moment, you know, like. It's like, you know, talking to you guys earlier today about how to get a job in publishing. One of the best ways is to work for free. Well, that's really limiting the kind of person that can go and work for a publisher, right? I mean, it's, so, yeah, I just think the whole financial part of the piece of it uh, is a mess. Um, and there's a way of doing it. And someone needs to come with it. I'd do it. You know, if, if publishers said, let's put a group of people together, we'll do it together. We'll work out how to do it. I'm like, I'll put my hand up. If, they, if they'd have me, I'd part of the conversation. <laughs> But that, I feel like you need something like that. Like, how do you push it on? Like, how do you harness the incredible talent that publishers have, that readers have, and the demand readers have for how they consume stories? How do you do that? 
um, in a way that's fit for this century, you know, like, I mean, I'm embarrassed when we're talking about the history of publishing, like it's barely changed in 500 years. But I feel like there's, anyway, I'm rabbiting now, but that's my big one. That's a good okay. one. Yeah. All right, where do we want to go? Well, on the topic of getting those jobs and publishing and working for free, for example, that one day a week, if you can swing it. Um, you mentioned a lot of creative ways that people can get into the publishing space that don't involve the standard bookseller, cover letter, CV, mm-hmm. waiting for the interview. Um, can you touch on some of those that you would recommend? Yeah, I mean, I just find like, if you want to impress somebody, sending a covering letter and a CV is like one of the worst ways I've ever heard of to communicate who you are and what you're capable of doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's another one of those uh, processes that we've just kind of settled on as the way it's done. Um, but I obviously spent a long time running the business and I didn't do all the job interviews, but I did a lot of them. And the things that really st- stood out for me, which we were talking about earlier, is people want someone that's really competent, that's really fun to be with, that's prepared to work really hard while their sleeves up. It's gonna, if there's a crisis, they're going to be ready and up for it. Um, but primarily, you want someone that's fun to work with, that's interesting, that has ideas, that's exciting. So the thing I always say to people is, you know, when you get an interview, um, the most important thing is to is to be yourself and communicate the thing about you that makes you sparkle, that makes you really excited, that really makes you not feel like you're in an interview in a terrifying scenario trying to get the job you desperately need, but actually allows you to show up as yourself. Um, and that's a really important thing and it's very hard to do but that's the candidate that does that is the one that they're going to remember reminds me of dating you talked about the hygiene factor earlier where it's like okay number one you're meeting someone don't smell like (laughs) if you know how to do all of those things then it goes on to like are you interesting do you match the culture (laughs) things like that we're going to be going for drinks every every week we're going to be having lunches together we're going to be hanging out doing water tours we're going to just you're going to be in like you're just going to spend a lot of time with these people so you know i think if you're applying for a job and you are serious you're going to be competent so the other stuff is it's just really important to remember that that they want a personality not, you know, stand-up comedian but just (laughs) and but also you want to be yourself so don't be someone you're not because you don't want to work somewhere where they need you to be who you're not. So being yourself, if you're you'll be miserable, job, yeah. then that's okay yeah. because you don't want to work there anyway because you want to work somewhere where you can be yourself. Well, tying back into the authenticity, it's pretty obvious. You know, if somebody is showboating or not, just not acting like themselves in an interview but it's hard. Um, versus I mean, when, when they are. The thing is, though, when I was going through, I could barely leave my house, right? So yeah. it's, it's hard to have the confidence to Absolutely. know who you are and be yourself. So I'm aware of how... And it can be nerve-wracking. Oh, yeah, but I, I get so, I get splotchy during every interview. Yeah, I have to make yeah. sure to wear the high collar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, totally. Well, that's it. We all get embarrassed. And it's like, <laughs> so spending some time on that, like I have breathing exercises I've talked to you guys about. Because mm-hmm. if you do the right kind of breathing exercise, it stops your body producing adrenaline and you can kind of stay It's calm. the like, it's like two breaths in and yeah, it was one basically out something. double out and in. So you breathe yeah. in for four, you breathe out for eight. If you do that for long enough, I mean, I used to do it every investment meeting or anything. I just go mm-hmm. sit in the loo and then just, do that for a few minutes until I could really, really feel myself mm-hmm. um, in a calm state of mind, but, but also your own well-being. Like it's highly, it's a highly fraught situation. So if you you need to develop practices that allow you to be the best version of yourself, and you, if you don't know what they are, then you can work it out. Like, I like your advice earlier. Also, like 
if you have trouble handling like high pressure situations or things, therapy is a great. Yes. You're like yeah, you're exactly. like. <laughs> yeah, if, if something really scares you, I mean that's that's what I learned as acrophobia. When you're when you're too scared to leave your front door, it's pretty clear which direction you need to go in, right? Yeah. You can go through that. Right. <laughs> so that taught me that fear is a compass. So the thing you're scared of, I have this theory. I'm gonna write a book about it one day, which is that um, when you when you're afraid to do something. It feels like you're lacking the piece of you that would enable you to do it, and that's why you can't do it. And my theory is that you're right. You are missing the piece of you that would enable you to do it. The problem is it's on the other side of doing the thing you're scared to do. So when you do the thing you're scared of, you get that piece of you, and it starts to make you feel more whole. And if you do that in your life and all the things that frighten you, and I don't mean like testosterone, adrenaline junkie stuff. I mean like <laughs> well, I'm but... scared to do public speaking or I'm scared to dance or whatever. I think the idea of getting out of your comfort zone is a much visited, you know, sort of fraught idea, but it, it makes sense. You're not going to be completely comfortable when you're doing, when you're walking through the door, but on the other side, that's now. That's where it is. Yeah. Feels great. And, it, and, and you, that's, I think, how you sort of become complete. It sounds a bit mad, but that's how you find out who yeah. you are, I think, because mm -hmm. you find those pieces and you, you're brave and have courage and you do those things. All right. Do we want to do idle pleasures? I want to, but we can, if we have any more serious questions, let's see. No, it's I think six eleven. Okay, we'll kind yeah, of explain okay. it to you first. Yes, I need to explain okay. this. So, I watch a lot of sports. I get a lot of sports like TikToks and reels, and one of my favorites is on podcasts. They'll do drafts of things. So, like a sports draft, you take this player first because he's your favorite. This right. player second. So say you would do a draft of red things and number one, I'm taking the stop sign and number two, I'm taking Clifford the big red dog, okay. right? So we're, we're, we're using a draft, but we're drafting things. Um, I really like the book, the book of idle pleasures yeah. um, and the different pleasures in it and the idea of having specific things in life that aren't, you know, necessarily doing yeah, an active yeah, yeah. thing but they're they have a lot of pleasure so i thought we could go around and do a quick draft <laughs> of your top five idle pleasures oh i can start if you want a chance to think about it well we can do yeah, we me, can go. me sydney then dan okay oh gosh i think my number one i'm gonna take I'm going to take a solid player. He's never let me down and that's good company. Um, if you're if you're with people who um, you know, don't don't feel like a drain, who you're very comfortable with and you can just spend hours hanging out with and not be yeah. self-conscious once or not worry about it once. Um, I think that is unique. A unique pleasure so i'm taking him number one I your turn sydney my number one told me a lot about myself actually because it is a task but it is where i feel the most calm just chopping vegetables <laughs> <laughs> like prep work for a dinner You're i, throw, insane. On, I, could I throw on the music i i i genuinely sometimes wish that i could just cut vegetables every day and prep for the it's like I see people prepping their vegetables for the week and I'm like, God, I wish I could do that, but I need to do it every day to have that moment for myself. Could never be me. Favorite moment of the day. <laughs> and, and I was like, ah, oh, that's my idle pleasure, but it is. So <laughs> that's a great one. Um my similar to, to yours about good company, mine is talking. Because <laughs> mm. I, I was very young when I realized that I have to talk to find out what I think. 
because mm. um, I read once that the part of your brain that makes decisions has no capacity for language. So you make decisions intuitively, and then what tends to happen is you retrospectively verbalize the reasons for them. And it's in that attempt to verbalize the sort of unknowable thing you know that you find your own answers. And so for me, it's I've always done that, and you do that with the right people, as similar to you, the conversations that you have. It blows my mind where ideas can go when you're when you're doing that. And that's that's idle in the sense that it's um you're just doing it for its own sake. But I love that's my favorite pastime. Nice. And it is enjoyable. People like to talk. People, you know, it's very natural. All right, so that's all our our number ones. Uh <laughs> for number two, uh I think I'm gonna take um He's not going to be on everyone's list, kind of an underrated idle pleasure. But for me, I like to draw a lot. I am very lucky. I have like an iPad with a little pencil. Um, so mine is going to be working on a drawing that is basically finished, right? So you're not actually doing much and you're just adding little details. But the whole time you get to admire this really cool drawing that you've done, right? So you're like constantly getting these little feelings of satisfaction as you add things that you think just like make it look even more cool so it's a very cool like liminal space to be in where you just get to kind of be proud of yourself and it's very calm i love uh, that i don't yeah. even i'm not good at drawing but every once in a while i do just go and do little sketches and it's very calming or maybe i mean if you like coloring books like when you're almost done coloring yeah. it in well, my number two is nesting my home. Um, I love to just move things around. I actually purposefully, when I was looking for a flat to rent out here, I wanted one with shelves because I knew that I was just gonna wanna redecorate the shelves. I do it probably once a week. Um, and I just, yeah, I move things around and then to back that up, I go to, this I guess is my number three, but antique shopping or vintages Ooh, out of order the draft cannot I know, allow I know, but every sunday i make the walk to this one shop that's only open on saturdays and sundays and i only buy the broken candles and then i go and i put them all around my house again Aww. i have so much fun doing wow. that every sunday <laughs> wow um i just thought one which i did quite recently which is um in the autumn and winter catching falling leaves with my kids Oh, that's so whimsical it's just the <laughs> most and if you really commit as the parent if you really commit and you mm -hmm. dive around like you'll never hear your kids squeal with more joy than that have you ever jumped in like a really nice big uh, pile of leaves yeah. so <laughs> yeah. satisfying yeah there's something magical about that and um, I actually have the leaf my, the first one my daughter Olive called kept just Aww. great fun, but you can't do it all the time. It's one of those things where it's like seizing the moment, like they're not always, it's not always available. So you have to yeah. do it if you can. All right, we're, we're moving. My, for my, whatever, my number three, I think we're on. Um, I think many publishing hopefuls will, will relate to this one. I love a good new notebook. I like having notebooks. I get gifted a lot of beautiful notebooks that I, am reluctant to write in mm -hmm. but I like to look at them and think about all of the things that I could write and I like to start them but I am awful at finishing them I've had like the same 
very beautiful but like diary for about three years and I'm slowly <laughs> making my way through it but yeah a good new notebook all right your number you're on your number four Sydney you're four. <laughs> uh it's just gonna be spending time with my dog I, that, honestly I should have said that's my number one Sydney has um, the cutest dog her name is Zena yeah she's amazing and I think that everybody in the program has heard me talk about Zena at least three times um even people who may not have even actually gotten to know my name they know me and my dog so she's lovely and we just like to hang out we quarrel we fight but we, we I love how you say quarrel yeah we quarrel we say like a squirrel <laughs> <laughs> all right number three to Dan uh hammocks oh excellent choice yeah excellent pick popular player uh, just when you see one, you just have to get in it, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like a kind of unspoken law of the universe that you must get in one. And I once, for my 30th birthday, which was a very long time ago, I hired a house and got friends to come down. It was on the River Avon, and from the hammock, you could see kingfishers most of the time, which are one of my favorite birds. Um, hammocks. And I coined the term hammockable. Which is where you describe two trees. That's an excellent term. I always, I feel like when I see someone in a hammock, I'm always jealous. It doesn't matter what the situation is. You're always just like, wish that was me. In my friend's backyard, we used to have three hammocks, and we would just all go and sit in a hammock. Like stacked above each other? Stacked right above one another. It got dangerous some nights, but we had fun. (laughs) (laughs) All right, for my number four pick, I'm, I'm... I'm torn between two. I'm going to go with a controversial player, <laughs> and that's squishing bread. This is more, I will say, from when I was younger. I think this is in the Idle Pleasures. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but bread, yeah. uh, specifically, like, a, like um, a good piece of, like, white bread that really squishes, squishes down, and then it's just, like, starch. It's just, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it feels so, like, not allowed. I'm doing something <laughs> my mom would yell at me for. <laughs> So maybe that's what makes it satisfying, squishing bread. Okay, you're on your last one. My last one, yeah. (laughs) And it's going to be, I call it lazy gardening. Because I'm not actually, I don't want to go out there. I don't want to put in the full day's work. But sometimes I just want to go out and pick a few weeds and like trim a bush back and repot a plant. It'll take me maybe 10 minutes. And I just walk inside and wow, that was so nice. And it's just like a quick little breath of fresh air, get my hands in the dirt, and then make myself a cup of tea. Oh, I just thought one which was probably should have been on my number one, which is swimming in the sea, but you don't actually swim. You just float? You just float. <gasps> yeah. Like the sea is about 45 minutes or to an hour from my house, and in the summer, I used to just drive down, and I would literally just lie in it. That should have gone number one. Yeah. But no actual, like, when you say I like swimming in the sea, it's not, it's not exercise, it's just like being in a, in a hammock. Oh, I have family that love to like, they'll go in and oh, yeah, do laps and everything. Water swims. Yeah. My dad's the same. Yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm just being in water. Mm. River swimming is similar. Mm-hmm. Not really going in there. Just floating. Or like there's a feeling, because I used to swim, when you go completely underwater and the whole world is like very quiet. I actually, my best friend, he calls it his uh, his daily baptism. Yeah. And he we lived right on the beach and every morning, he would just go and plunge into the water, even if it was just for 10 seconds. And then you'd get out and start his day. And that is, I thought it was the most brilliant way to start your day personally. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I see it. Yeah, I would do that if I could. Yeah. Right. All right, we're on to 
number fives. I'm going to combine two, and I don't know how that works with the metaphor for a draft, but <laughs> they're both weather-related. My first one is like when the sun comes through a window and it makes the little dust motes mm. light up. So I'm thinking a library or my my childhood bedroom had this a lot. But like, because then it's, it's almost like you can see the sun because you can see what the sun is lighting up in the air. So that's one. And the other one is petrichor. I'm not sure if it's a real word. I'm pretty sure it is. I think it's the word for the smell of the earth after it rains. Oh, wow. I, that's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, earth after rain and then sunbeams. <laughs> All right, we're skipping. Yeah, we're done, skipping Sydney. Done She's done five. God, I also love sunbeams. Um, but number five. So it, I'm not quite sure why I love this one. And I don't actually do it now, but I went through a phase of not opening letters. <laughs> Like particularly okay. bills or official looking letters. I'm, I'm in that phase now, yeah. actually. <laughs> There's something, you know it's wrong, you know you're storing up. It's like drinking and knowing you're going to get hangover, but you know it's bad. There's something about ignoring official letters that I get really. <laughs> See, I completely. Of, completely... of like, fuck you. <laughs> I'm not, you know, you don't just send me something. Like, <laughs> I'm going to engage with this when I want to. And it's teenage. Um, I totally disagree. I yeah. think it's. <laughs> I think it's no. I just think opening letters are so satisfying. But not like a nice one. I'm talking about like an official one that's. Yeah, that's fair. If the it. town council sends me one more yeah, piece yeah. of mail, I will yeah. burn them down. Yeah. I'm... Like a bill, or it's like I mean, yeah. It's a nice yeah, that's letter. not exciting to get. No, I see, I see that. Yeah, official looking mail, which is just like a mean man in a suit, like looking yeah. scowling at you. Those kind of ones, and like the. I'm not getting my consciousness. You're going on a pile. <laughs> well, excellent. Awesome. I don't think we have anything else. Um, is there anything else you wanted to You want to pitch the, say? do you know when your do book is going to be coming out? Yeah. What month? No, so, okay. yeah, it's called Do Start, How to Create and Run a Business That Doesn't Run You. It's out on the 6th of April. Oh, All right. soon. Okay. Yeah, it's out this year. And, um, yeah, it's basically all the things I learned running Unbound uh, squeezed into 25,000 words. Um, yeah, I'm really proud of it. It's gonna, it's, it's good. We'll look out Perfect. for it in April. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, thanks for listening to our interview with Dan Kieran. Any of his books that we talked about will be linked in the show notes. And if any of you have any of your own idle pleasures that you would like to share, please send them to our email, uncoveringpublishing at gmail.com. Who knows, we may even be sharing them on our Instagram. Yep, and we'll put that email in the show notes as well. Stay tuned for the next one. We should be dropping every other Friday. Thanks. Thank you.